Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to another festive treat from your own personal Beatles. My name is Jack Pelling and with me... I'm Robin Allender. Hello. In the flesh. Yes, Sir La Flesh. Uh, I'm here. Nice to see you. Nice to see you. Um, we're just about to record our Christmas special, um, which will be coming out on the 23rd of December, where we're going to do our deep dive into Get Back and also hear from a lot of uh, friends of the show uh, in what will be, if not our final podcast, then our final podcast for a while, certainly. Uh, but before then, we thought we would tide you over with another one of our uh, bonus podcasts from earlier in the year. And this is our trip to Abbey Road in August with Ellis James, um, which I would describe as one of the best days of my life. <laughs> yeah, it was extraordinary. Um, yeah, I look back on it so fondly. And I think all three of us had a very kind of emotional reaction to it. And we kind of recorded the chat we had a couple of days afterwards and kind mm. of went through the experience of it. And I read a few extracts from the George Martin book, Summer of Love, which had such a profound effect on me. Yeah. And I read it when I was quite young. I, I think you can still get a copy of it. Yeah, I bought it um, from Germany. Oh, okay. It's brilliant. But it's one of my favorite Beatle books. It is. Sure, and yeah. yeah, George Martin is so, as, as you'll know from Get Back, he's so funny and down to earth as well. Yeah. And, and brilliant uh, writer. Yeah, such yeah. a good writer. And George Martin, the way he writes about John, as if there's almost a kind of father-son relationship, I yeah. think is so moving. And I think really gets to the heart of, you know, the John we know and love as being, you know, complicated. But there's a, there's a kind of curious naivety to John that I really like. And I think you get that in Get Back as well. There's a lovely mm. bit where he's pointing out the microphone stands or the boom mics above him and he calls them sticks you know <laughs> it just i love that it reminds yeah. me a little bit of being in a band you know the first time i was in a band yeah in your how teens to, yeah i don't know, know, know the terminology yeah i don't yeah. know how to plug an amp you know a guitar into an amp or something yeah like but but yeah i think it, but anyway this episode is so was so good and it was alice was very articulate about the kind of wonder of it and yeah, it's a good lesson. Yeah, it was a huge, huge privilege to do. It was on a, a blisteringly hot day in August, which seems very far away. Yeah. And apt for exactly the same time of year that um, they did the photos and stuff for the yes. album cover. Yeah. So, you know, um, it was just a very, very special time, even though I was quite ill, which I don't think I've mentioned on the podcast. Really? But um, yeah, I had tonsillitis, do you oh, remember? Because yeah, yeah, it yeah. was touch and goes for whether we were going to do it. But um, mm. yeah, it was, uh, it was a very magical experience and you'll hear a lot of that mm. uh, coming up. So um, we'll do a little bit of correspondence. And in the meantime, um, we've got one more show left. So if you do want to email us about um, your thoughts on Get Back or any other questions, it might be your last opportunity <laughs> for quite a while. Um, so you can get into contact by going to uh, personalbeatles.com forward slash contact or email me jack at homespunsounds.com or follow us on the old social medias um we should probably do one more plug for our award thing 
um, that we're nominated for, which is incredibly flattering music podcast of the year at the Pod Bible winners poll. You can go to podbiblemag.com. And uh, if you're wondering what you want, what we want for Christmas, that's what we want, as I said last week. Um, and yeah, my mum would be very happy <laughs> if uh, we got in the top three for that. Um, so yeah, please do that. Um, you've got something to read out. Oh yes, we it's, crack on. it's just from my friend Drew actually, who who lives in Edinburgh, who was um, something of a Beatles skeptic. He like really liked the early stuff. I think I think I quoted him before as saying mm. they. The, like Rubber Soul's the last good album in his theory, right, <laughs> his yeah, yeah. or something like that. But he 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 was totally transfixed by Get Back, and he sent me a really funny article from 1965 from the Beatles' last UK tour mm-hmm. when they played in Glasgow, and there's some really lovely quotes in here. Oh, so this was also the day after George Harrison's guitar fell off the van. Do you know? You know about oh yeah, Motoy? yeah. yeah. <laughs> Tragic. My special favourite, smashed to bits, he bemoaned at a news conference before the show, where the group faced a battery of 30 photographers and pressmen. He added that when they found the remains of the guitar, it looked as if it had been run over by about 10 lorries. It's out of tune now, quipped John Lennon. <laughs> the newspaper article then goes on to describe the audience's reaction to the Beatles' performance. Sorry, I really didn't give this enough context at the time. An official of St Andrew's Ambulance Association said 37 of those treated were fainting cases and 88 were suffering from hysteria. There were also two arrests. One ambulance worker commented, give me a Rangers Celtic game any day. This is just too much. <laughs> <laughs> Which is fantastic. I love that. Anyway, thanks, Drew. Um, So enjoy this little bonus treat with Ellis James. And, uh, you know, we'll be back in a week with our... Can we... I think we can probably call it, without too much exaggeration, (laughs) star-studded season finale. Um, So, yeah, until then, uh, enjoy this. We probably won't be back at the end because there's nothing else to say. But enjoy the episode. Thanks for listening and keep beetling on. KBO, hashtag KBO. Hashtag KBO. <laughs> Thank you very much for the person who left KBO in the uh, iTunes review. Yeah. That made us chuckle. Um, if you want to review the show, you can go Smooth. to Apple Podcasts, not iTunes anymore, and uh, give us a five-star rating. That would be lovely. And if you want to write KBO in it, we'll give you a special shout-out. <laughs> Thank you very much. Enjoy the show. So tonight we're delighted to be joined by Ellis James, and we had a fantastic day the other day where we were taken on a guided tour of Abbey Road Studios, and Abbey Road doesn't open its doors to visitors really, uh, or it hasn't done in the 90 years it's been open really, so it was open for one week and for, for visitors to book a tour, so we're very lucky to go down and have a look around. It was actually a news story on Six Music. Oh, really? Yeah, but they, they're on the music news on Rodcliffe and McCorney yeah, uh, today. We're recording this on Saturday. Um, they said, and the big news is that Abbey Road yeah. has opened its doors for the first time in 90 years because I think prior to this, my friend Matt had been to Studio Two um, and told me, oh, it's, it's, it's just amazing yeah. because it looks exactly the same, which is something we'll come on to in, in a second. I think... What was so special about what they did this week was yeah. that you could go into Studios 1 and 3. Mm. Because I think they know that Studio 2 is the kind of Beatles studio. So mm. I, I mm. think that's the one for the fans that the fans want to see. I think you could see that, but not all of it like we did. <laughs> but before we get on to Abbey Road, Ellis is in a jubilant mood tonight. So are you able to explain why? <laughs> yeah, I, I went to visit Buckingham Palace with my daughter because she's mm. six. 
took her out to look at the Queen. Yeah, and she wasn't she wasn't particularly interested, but that was fine. <laughs> yeah. um, and we had a nice day in Green Park. And then I realised that I'd forgotten my coat in Green Park, but we didn't. Re- I didn't realise until I until I'd come home and eaten. So it's now an hour and a half since the coat has fallen off the buggy. And I thought to myself, I'm not going to let this lie. <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to let this one go. So I cycled back into central London, which is, which is nine miles from where I live. And incredibly, <laughs> someone had picked it up, folded it really neatly and kind of tied it to some railings exactly by where I knew I dropped it as well because I, I I could work out that I'd dropped it just before we got in a taxi because I I I I can remember prior to getting to the taxi about 50 yards before noticing that it was covered in apple juice uh, which was <laughs> which was another problem but that's a problem for another day <laughs> so so I I knew that if it was going to be there and if it hadn't been pinched it, I knew exactly where it would be, so I cycled straight there, and that's where it was. And you know what? As you're doing something, when you're looking for something, you think, surely not. Yeah. And then when you do find it, I'm, I'm in such a jubilant mood. I'm so exuberant. <laughs> and the, the fact is, it's actually inconsistent with how I felt after seeing Abbey Road, because I've, I've, <laughs> I'm such a massive Beatles fan, and they mean so much to me. And obviously the vast, vast majority of their work was was done at Abbey Road. And I found going to Abbey Road Studios a completely overwhelming experience, mm. far more emotional and affecting than I thought it would be. Mm. But I found my coat, so I've, got, <laughs> so I've kind of forgotten about that now. <laughs> but, but do you think maybe that jubilation is going to inform this recording, though? I think yeah, but it's, it's going to make the recording... Um, it, it's not going to be a very. Uh, it's not. It's not going to be an objective sort of portrayal of how I actually felt because it's completely informed by by coped finding. <laughs> There's a spirit of ecstasy running through <laughs> the whole record. I feel like I'm on pills. That's <laughs> amazing. Yeah. That's great. The world's greatest high. Yeah. Imagine if you hadn't. I mean, you, that's. It's kind of a gamble doing that because you're gonna. It's doubling down emotionally. If you then yeah. cycle eighteen miles, and yeah, it's not it was. There. I did. It was sixteen miles because I, I, um, I, I can measure it on my phone. But obviously, it's a warm summer's day, so I had to cycle back with my coat on. So by the time I got home, the reason I'm late for the recordings, I had to have a shower because I was sweating pints. I mean, it's, it's been quite an exciting day, all wow. told. Yeah. Amazing! What a, what a week. So, so we met up in the Ordnance Pub near Abbey Road. We, Jack and I, were having couple of beers and Ellis strode in with a very fetching Harrington jacket not the jacket you lost no but what so Jack what, what was the question you were going to ask what, what was your... um so yeah I mean part of what we were talking about in the pub when you know slightly nervous with excitement was kind of what that place means to us and how it sort of conceptually holds a place in your mind's eye as this great sort of unknowable battleground where all those Beatles records were made so what did it mean sort of conceptually to you like before you walked through the doors and saw it in the flesh? When when I walked into the pub prior to actually seeing it I thought I know it's a working studio because records I really like have been made there in the last couple of years so it can't be that it can't be that similar can it but then the slightly odd frame of mind I was in going to Abbey Road is that it happened to be Izzy my partner's birthday (laughs) And 
going to Abbey Road and not celebrating her birthday with her was was a bone of contention. <laughs> and, so just and, to get this clear, um, yeah. Jack gave you a list of dates, and you looked through them. You saw this date, and you thought, "Yeah, that one seems fine." Well, I was, <laughs> I, 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 I didn't think that I'd ever get to visit there. Yeah. Mm. And so when Jack said, "Can you do the 11th? I immediately said, "Absolutely." Mm. And then I told Izzy, and she said, "You do know what's on the 11th? And I went, "Yeah, yes, 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 I, <laughs> yes, I, I do now." So, and all of my friends said, "You selfish idiot! I can't believe you're going to go to Abbey Road." Apart from my friend Matt, who had done the tour of Studio Two, and he said, "Oh, you've mm. got to go! It's absolutely amazing because it's mm. exactly the same." And you know, we'll discuss this in, in in a bit. But Studio Two, the one where they recorded the where they did the bulk of their recording is the one that is most similar to how it was then. Mm. And there is a real feel. I mean, it is like walking into 1966 to an extent. I mean, the the, the thing that struck the three of us uh, when we walked in was the smell of it. It smells like a school hall. It smells mm. like you're about to, you know, go in for assembly. I, so I, I, I turned up thinking it was going to be interesting. What I didn't expect and what I found so moving was that they clearly realised what they had mm. going for it. And so they've kept the old desks and they've kept all of the old equipment. Mm. Not, not just studio gizmos, which, was, which were kind of fascinating anyway because they, they now look like museum pieces. Mm. But also they had loads of Vox amps and, and, and the, the pianos that they were using and the Hammond organs that they were using. So that was very overwhelming because... As a Beatles fan, if you are a fan of an obscure band, you can have ownership over that band. Mm. But if you're a fan of the Beatles, the biggest band of all time, you can't really have ownership over the Beatles. I think you can if, say, you were from Liverpool and you saw them at the Cavern, mm. or if you were lucky enough to see them on an early tour, maybe, or mm. if you saw them in Hamburg. But as someone who was born 10 years after they split up, they were they're certainly one of my favourite bands, but I I don't feel like I own them in the way that I feel ownership over the Super Free Animals or Gorky's Psychotic Monkey because mm. they're too big. Mm. So then to have access to to see close up a piano that has and a Hammond organ that has got fag burns on it that you know come from John Lennon and Paul McCartney. <laughs> yeah. It was it was honestly like having a bucket of cold water thrown over me. I yeah. just I could not believe it. I think um I think that was my big my my expectation was when we were sitting in the pub was um I think I was expecting it to feel kind of like a museum tour. But what I wasn't expecting was a obviously it's a working studio now and just how kind of you know well maintained it is so they do have all the equipment and you can still use all the old equipment if you request it you could still use a j37 tape machine you know and and also yeah i wasn't expecting the incredible emotional feeling of being there as well i wasn't mm. expecting to feel as overcome as i was i mean we should stress you know we weren't really able to record in there um uh, as we were walking around um because it, a we were on a guided tour with lots of other people b they were playing music that was recorded there yeah. you know through the speakers very so it's a bit hard to, to clear <laughs> yeah so it's kind of hard to you know we, we can't imagine doing a kind of 
reminiscence about Strawberry Fields while while uh, don't while uh, Stand well, by Me by Oasis was playing. Or the music from Indiana Jones and the Rings yeah. of the Lost Ark. <laughs> yeah, and the other reason was that. Ellis was seemed to be only able to say one word, which was the F word most <laughs> yeah, of the time. I just, I just kept saying it. Yeah, it was quite extraordinary. Yeah, my overriding thing was sort of having, you know, I live quite close and I walk past it a lot and just knowing what's in the inside has never made sense to me from the facade of a slightly unassuming sort of Georgian townhouse. So yeah. that was sort of the main mystery to me, is how does this weird little TARDIS effect of yeah, three exactly. huge the, studios yeah. sit in this little cottage. So there was, yeah, definitely that. it does. I, I didn't realise it just looked like a house from the outside. Yeah, but everything about it is kind of, I mean, even when we went down to the crossing, you every time I walk around there, it kind of takes you by surprise, because yeah. it sort of looks so sort of normal in North London, and then you're like, oh, that's it, that's the one, and then of course it is, it couldn't be anything but, else. yeah. The thing, and I got the overwhelming feelings as soon as I saw the zebra crossing because the flats opposite Abbey Road are, I would say, late Victorian, maybe mm. Edwardian flats. And so they were there then. Yeah, they look the same. And so yeah. if you come out of the front door of Abbey Road, what faces you is what would have faced Paul McCartney, mm. George Harrison, Ringo Starr and John Lennon. Mm. And, you know, if, if they'd knocked those flats down and there was, a you know, a, a, an office building or, a, or you know, brand new flats or something, then that completely removes the magic, I think. Mm. But I stared at the uh, Zebra Crossing and then I Google imaged the cover of Abbey Road, the album. I thought, oh, my God, I mean, that even the trees look the same somehow. Mm. And it hasn't changed. No. And I'm, I'm not familiar with that part of London. I, when I did stand-up, I don't think if there was a gig run there, I never did it. So I've, I've never been to St John's Wood. I've mm-hmm. driven past Lords once or twice. It's on the corner from the cricket ground. Mm. But, you know, like the Hacienda nightclub is now flats. Yeah. 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 And, um, you know, the cavern has, was knocked down. And mm. I know that they rebuilt it, but they on apparently... On the other side of the road. <laughs> yeah, they, yeah, exactly. And there are, prob- and there yeah. are problems with the rebuild. Yeah. And if it's not the same, then you know it's not the same. And mm. I don't know, I think Eric's where Echo and the Bunny Men played mm. and Wah Heat and the Teardrop Explodes, that became cream, didn't it? I mean, you lose these venues. These venues go all of the time. Mm. And yet, or they change beyond recognition. Yeah. And obviously, that takes away the impact. But Abbey Road, because it's a Georgian building faced by what I imagine are late Victorian or Edwardian flats, for Paul McCartney, who's worked there for 60 years almost, it, it must be mind-boggling mm. to think, well, this is where I changed the world, yeah. and now this is where I'm doing my latest record, yeah. and the only thing that's changed really is me. Yeah. Mm. I think it's, I mean, it's lucky in a way to be in such a part of London, which is so kind of well-heeled, because, it, it, you know... It, some bits of London don't get as developed as other bits. So it does, just turning that corner and seeing that view, which is so familiar, Yeah, it was just a, like, it, it, yeah, it literally hasn't yeah. changed. And it is, you know, people will come from a long way to walk over that crossing or whatever. Yeah. So they've realised the sort of strength of the legacy of it, I guess. And yeah. if you, Yeah, and if you watch the Beatles anthology or any other Beatles documentary, there's lots of footage of them turning up at Abbey Road or yeah, leaving yeah. Abbey Road yeah. or getting dropped off at Abbey Road. 
Yeah. And apart from their, you know, their modern cars as opposed to, uh, you know, cars from 1967, mm. it. It is very, very similar. And the the mm. font, I, I think it says EMI Studios on the, over the front door as opposed to Abbey Road Studios. There are little mm. differences like that. But even the even the steps, I I looked at the photo that we took, mm. and then I looked at a photo of the of the band. Yeah. And even the little the railings yeah. are the same. And I thought, yeah. Christ. Yeah, I know. And I mm. I'm someone who gets very affected by that stuff. Anyway. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Well, I think the whole day was about that getting affected by the smallest. Things yeah. really that had seemed, had, were imbued with so much significance. Have you heard the story that um, a couple of few Halloweens ago that Paul McCartney queued up and did the uh, the Abbey Road crossing and got a photo of himself wearing a monkey mask? <laughs> really? <laughs> That's <laughs> and great. He took it off at the end and everyone was like, went insane. <laughs> <laughs> so we did get our photos, to, you know, which is quite difficult. It's a very busy road. Yeah. We got our photos on the zebra crossing. Bit of a death trap. Oh. Ellis, yeah. when we took our one, you sort of stopped. Halfway to sort of pose for the picture <laughs> without realizing that they probably just kind of oh I'm putting us all in danger. But I really wanted I, I, I wanted the shot to be perfect. Yeah. But I don't yeah, think they sort of great. froze in position <laughs> when no. they were taking it. And we did have we did have the argument about which one of us was going to take their shoes off. Yeah, yeah. we yeah. couldn't get a car that had the registration plate twenty eight. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And um, it's very nicely done up with the All Things Must Pass mural at the moment as well. That's something yeah. I thought was nice. So, right, so we went in and the first thing we were shown was the control room of Studio 3, which is the smallest studio of the three. So, Jack, do you want to take it from there? Yeah, well, they sort of, they, they played us a bit of, they sort of teased that they were going to play us something on their sort of incredible 5.1 surround thing. Um, and I was thinking, oh, you know, it's probably going to be, you know, one of the recent remixes or something. But weirdly, they played Imagine. I guess it's because it's a sort of crowd pleaser. But that's a bit strange because most of that was recorded in Weybridge, mm. John Lennon's. But so, And then they put the strings on and mixed it all in, in Abbey Road. But actually, it was a really good choice because it shows you exactly what the... I think the strength of Abbey Road and why it's so unique is just the sound of the rooms. Mm. There's nothing more to it there. And they, I mean, on those speaker systems, I've quite recently bought some new speakers, which I'm absolutely chuffed to bits with. And as soon as the strings started kicking in, in the bit that they played us, I just wanted to throw them in the bin. Really? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they sound, yeah, I've never, you know, it was absolutely extraordinary. It was amazing. And I mean, Imagine is a song that I guess maybe all three of us have kind of conflicting feelings around maybe but i found it incredibly moving listening to it um yeah mm. i found it moving but then something i hadn't expected at all actually which almost fit made me feel quite juvenile is like the two of you i was in bands in uh, as a teenager and also in my 20s and we recorded them in one really nice studio in Bristol Toy Box, which oh, yeah. Robin, yeah, you'll be familiar with. Well, Ali Chant often he runs Toy Box. He often works at Abbey Road. He was there the other day. Oh, <laughs> yeah. does he? Well, yeah. yeah. So we, we recorded with Ali. I mean, yeah. he wouldn't remember me, I don't think. But that. that oh, I think probably... he does. I think. I've mentioned oh, does he? Oh, well, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's fifteen years ago now. I mm. think. So that was my one experience of recording in a really nice studio, mm. and we saved up. And I'm sure that a lot of the listeners who play guitar in particular will. 
be familiar with that feeling that, you know, when you learn guitar maybe as a teenager, it opens up this whole world of uh, tech and equipment and gadgets. Pain. Mm. And yeah. pain. And, <laughs> yeah. all, and also things that that are prohibitively expensive. Yeah. Mm. yeah. So when I was, I think I was in my first band when I was about 15, so I'd, I had some savings and I... I splurged them all on uh, an Epiphone SG guitar, which was £210. But then obviously I needed an amp, so it took me years to save up for that. And then you want a distortion pedal, then you want a chorus pedal and a flange pedal. They're all, at the time, they were all about 75 quid, which was just completely unobtainably expensive. And then your friend might have one and he might have bought one secondhand. So you're just trying your best to scrimp and save to, and, and, and to obtain the, the equipment and the gear that you need to make the sounds that you want to, to make. And then we turned up in Studio 3 and they've got it all. Everything yeah. that you could possibly want. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's all the best stuff. So there, was, yeah. there were all these lovely guitars, all the guitars I'd dreamt of since I was about 13, realising as well that my dreams haven't changed and I'm in 40. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. there was an amazing Hammond organ that I've always wanted to play. Yeah, and there was, um, synths. And there was, there was a lovely Moog synth and a great Ludwig drum kit and um, a 100-year-old piano and all these amazing Vox amps and there were Fender amps and there were Marshall amps. And I suddenly felt like a kid in a sweet shop. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And I thought, of course, it's a working studio. Yeah. Of course I can have this stuff. That's what I felt in, <laughs> yeah. in Studio 3 was that great sense of, uh, you know, for a band to come in, it is like being a kid in a sweet shop. And, you know, that, that, that seems, that is so much what the relationship of the Beatles to Abbey Road was about. Like, how can Abbey Road match the requirements of what the Beatles imagine they want you know and and you know that's kind of two-way street is obviously still happening bands come in it's like oh let's try this out let's try that guitar let's try this amp this pedal and you know that's all still going on it was great to see yeah and some of the studio spaces are really affordable yeah yeah studio three is Mm. yeah as you said is the smallest one but I mean that's quite a you know the the Plastic Ono band album was recorded there um you know it's that great drawing Klaus, Klaus Foreman did from the control room, you know, yeah. which is the view we had, um, which is... And there are studios that are 500 quid a day, yeah. which is which is achievable if you're in a band. Mm. If yeah. it's five years, 100 quid you've got to find, and you've yeah. recorded in the same yeah. place as <laughs> the Beatles and Pink yeah. Floyd. And, yeah, yeah. And I, f- yeah. I found that really inspiring, even though I'm not yeah. a musician anymore. And... As you walk in, the lobby and the foyer is very modern. And you think, of course, Mm. because, you know, there's pictures of Amy Winehouse and George Ezra, because obviously it's clearly a working studio. And then you go in there and then you see all of the stuff that you weren't able to play because you couldn't afford it. And it's all there. And suddenly I felt like I was in Willy Wonka's chocolate factory. And then you realise that the beat is recorded there and then you remember that and you think you're going to faint. <laughs> um, and then you go into Studio 2, which mm. is which looks so similar to how it did then. And I, I, I don't know if you follow the uh, the Beatles' Twitter account, The Teetles. Oh, yes. Mm. Which yeah, is pictures of the Beatles in recording studios drinking tea. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> so I have seen in my time... Hundreds of photos of the band at mm. Abbey Road, probably thousands, maybe. Yeah. 
So I, I know what Abbey Road looked like hmm. between, you know, 1962 and 1970. I'm, I'm kind of intimately acquainted with Abbey Road in that time. And then you walk into Studio Two and it basically looks the same. Mm. And my knees turned to jelly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I thought you need to get yeah. a grip. It was extraordinary because we, you know, we, w- we went into the control room of Studio Two first, which is kind of up the stairs. So, and then the first time you go underground, so this is where the kind of all this space reveals itself as we went down mm. the stairs to Studio Two. And the, and the first thing that I felt was an incredible feeling of nostalgia. A, because, as he said, is so familiar with seeing photos of the Beatles in this exact setting. And B, because there was that nostalgia, because it was like, as you said, a school hall, the smell of it. Yeah. And, you know, mm. the beautiful tiled floor with those kind of wooden chevrons, you know, yeah. the tiling in those yeah. triangular I mean, shapes. It was like walking onto the Death Star or the set of Star Wars <laughs> yeah. or something. That's how sort of intimately I know it. And Studio yeah. 3 is a very modern studio as well, so... When yes. we were in there, I was kind of like, oh, right, is it going to be this kind of... Is it, yes. yeah. It's that, but they've modern, modernised it. And then the guy in there was like, yeah, we're tearing all this shit down. It's, you know, we're rebuilding it. And I was like, what's yeah. wrong with it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think but it's yes. fine as it is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And walk into that control room and then instantly you see that window. And then the, uh, the first thing that came into my head was the, uh, I don't like your tie for a star. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That that moment that was uh, you know and that, all those pictures that I'm leaning over the console with smoking fags and stuff and yeah. it was just yeah I mean then the contrast of it of being a modern studio which is has history to a time warp mm. is is unbelievable. I mean I got this uh, such a strong sense of this kind of uh, isn't it strange how Sergeant Pepper I always think Sergeant Pepper feels like such a bright, sunny, summery record. And isn't it strange it was recorded in the winter, early spring kind of... Underground. <laughs> underground. Yeah. But I kind of, walking down there, I felt that kind of, just that real school hall feeling mm. of like, you know, a hot, summery school hall. Yeah. Yeah. And something very workmanlike. It's, yeah. It feels very functional. Mm. And like you're there to sort of do do a job, and you mentioned the smell earlier, but that for me yeah. was my absolute overriding. Yeah, it smelled like every like crap studio in Oxford that I ever used to. <laughs> well, and it's not an unpleasant smell. No, no, it was but just it's, this it's kind of the word. Like, and, it just smells yeah. like old things. Yeah, old. <laughs> it it was like being knocked over the head with a sledgehammer, mm. and I hadn't expected this. And I'm I'm about to show off, but the only time I've had a similar feeling is that when the Beatles recorded the stuff that would go on to be the album that was Let It Be at Twickenham Film Studios, I, I, I filmed some sitcoms at Twickenham Film Studios um, a few years ago, and that massive room where they were, because obviously the, the idea of that record was that they would start absolutely from scratch with nothing, and they would take their ideas in and they would they would work the songs up and perfect them and then record them all in front of the cameras. That massive room they were in, I cannot explain to you how little it's changed. Mm. Mm. And everyone's seen the argument, you know, between Harrison and Paul McCartney. Well, I'll play what you want me to play or I won't play yeah. anything at all. I'm trying mm. to help you, George, you know. It's just, <laughs> it's just I can feel myself annoying you, you know. that. That's, <laughs> and that argument... So I've, of all the footage I've seen of the Letter B sessions, having worked in that room... It is every single day. So I, I I made four series in there, and each series took six weeks. So I spent quite a lot of time in there, and every 
single day as I walked in, I would think, this is where they had that argument. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it's really about because Lennon doesn't say very much and Ringo kind of fiddles with his drums yeah. and they're arguing, but they, it's on camera and it's very awkward. But somehow the room is, is they haven't done anything to the room. And then mm. I, I got that same feeling in Studio 2, which I hadn't expected because I knew it was still a working studio. I, I assumed that it would have had a refit. So it's several refurbs, mm. complete refurbs over the years. But it hasn't really. They changed some of the the sound insulation stuff. Yeah. In 1986, they discovered it was super flammable. Oh, yeah. Mm. What, did they used to call it the duvets or something? Yeah. Like that? So yeah. <laughs> the outside, it still looks the same, but the inside yeah. has, been, yeah. um, has been replaced with different stuff that isn't flammable. <laughs> and, I mean, I'm, I'm going to honestly... I'm not even going to be particularly lucid or or <laughs> articulate, but they'd set up all of the Vox amps that they used, and they set up, um, you know, the, the the Mellotron, yeah, and the Hammond that had all these fag burns that are definitely John and Paul's, <laughs> and I've even seen pictures of them at the Hammond with their fags hanging over yeah. the, the left hand mm. side. So I I wondered if it was the one from long 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 with the. Uh... With a bo- bottle of blue nun rattling away, you know, yeah, <laughs> that yeah, must have been that. I think it probably was, yeah, yeah, definitely the one that Billy Preston played everything on. And, yeah, yeah, and and then you've got the desk and all of the other studio stuff. And what was amazing because everything had a little um, uh, sign attached to it, explaining what it was and its significance. And if you are in an indie band or any sort of band, you can use all of that stuff. Yeah. And if you want your latest record in 2021 to be recorded in complete Beatles conditions, you can you can if you want. Mm. Mm. I thought, and I found that quite confusing because I I sometimes feel bad about liking a lot of stuff from the past, in particular pop culture. I far prefer the pop culture of the past than pop culture of the present. And if you'd said to the Beatles in 1966. Would you like to record your latest album, but using the technology of 1910? <laughs> they would have said no. Of course yeah. not. <laughs> and yeah. all of those, all of those things, all of the compressors, all of the stuff that's still there. It was the it was the latest stuff in 1964 yeah. or 1965. So obviously they started off on four track, I think, and then it became eight track. Two, two, two four, then eight. Yeah. Mm. Um, and you're constantly looking for better because they were so ambitious sonically. Yeah. And yet, if I was in a band, I would be like, hi, can we... I think they really got it right about 60 years ago, so can we do, yeah. Can we use that stuff? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, you know, what was amazing... I mean, what, the best thing about the Beatles story is the acceleration, isn't it? Uh, the, yeah. You know, how quickly things changed, how quickly they evolved in such a short space of time. And so what was amazing about the tour of the kind of studio gear of the desks and the tape machines was you could actually see that progress in your own eyes. Yeah. How they went mm. from two tracks to four tracks to eight tracks. And, you know, and it wasn't just the Beatles pushing that. It was all the people they worked with, like Ken Townsend, yeah. Jeff Emmerich, yeah. you know, 
they were the real innovators as well. And um, and I think that that spirit is still there in Abbey Road because there's an Abbey Road Academy. So the people doing the tour were these people who had graduated from the academy. Yeah. So it's, mm. it's the, still the same spirit of people trying to improve. So it isn't stuck in the past in, in a way. It's all, it's all about this kind of evolution. And also you get a sense of sort of just... I mean, there are lots of... There are so many serendipitous things that happens along the Beatles' journey to mm. take them to that next level. But for them to have access to such an amazing collection of, you know, I think Abbey Road have got something like 800 microphones and they mm. did have all the latest technology. And, but then also a lot of those instruments are very old. A lot of the, you know, they used a lot of pianos from you know, they were like sort of Victorian pianos yeah. as well. They just, they, it was that kid in the candy shop thing that we mm. had is kind of what they had. And like Paul, there's a quote from Paul that was in the little book that came with it. And he says, Abbey Road is the only studio I've ever known in the world where you have one grand piano, one super grand piano, one medium grand, one upright with tinkly things as used by <laughs> Ross Conway, one upright sort of sounding like Jerry Lee Lewis, a Celeste. Everything was just there in the studio for normal use. Mm. And that's, Exactly what it was is like, yeah. really. You know, mm. There's nothing precious about, you know. It's mm. amazing to see them for us, but they're not sort of artifacts. Yeah. They're very much in general. When Robin use. said that spirit of evolution is still there, it is for the studio. It's the musicians who are like, no, can, can we make it sound yeah. like it's nice yeah, and yeah, 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 please? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And but then, then you know, take the Mrs. Stride upright Steinway or whatever, and make, you know, there's nothing yeah. retrograde about. Penny Lane, but just using that instrument just has such an incredible mm. quality. And and um, you know there were there were all these little studio things that would improve the quality of their recordings, and they were all lined up in chronological order. So there was stuff from 1964 and stuff from 1965 and that stuff from 1966. And it's all things that are going to improve the recording experience for the greatest band that's ever been. Mm. So you're just imagining how excited they must have been when, you know, Ken Townsend or George Martin or whoever it was was saying, listen, Lance, you've got to see this. Mm. Because yeah. that stuff we were really struggling to do six months ago is going to yeah. be much easier now. Yeah. Or we can do this twice as well as on the old machine because yeah. we've just bought this from America and we've bought five of them. So... You know, you the, can the amazing thing with the Ken Townsend thing is that Abbey Road was actually quite late to adopt eight track. Yeah, because yeah. for for a long time they were using the two four tracks synced up with people pressing play and record at the same and, time. And stuff. I think when they adopted eight track, I think a lot of other studios had already adopted sixteen yeah. track. Right. So I think that when they made um, Sergeant Pepper, I think that there were aspects that would have been better if they'd recorded in another studio. Yeah. Yeah. But, I mean, they, they just had that, you know, I mean, Abbey Road was the first album that was recorded on the solid state desk. And Jeff Emmerich really thinks it doesn't kind of sound as good because it doesn't have the kind of valvey, distortion-y, saturation-y sound of yeah. the, the, the kind of earlier albums. But I, I think um, the, the, the amazing thing about seeing the tape machines as well, the J37 four-track tape machine was, um, you know, I'm kind of familiar with that because I use this plug-in waves do an emulator of it so it's like seeing it was like really weird it was like seeing you know something you've seen pictures of and kind of yeah. used versions of in the flesh and the guy who's showing me around who was someone who graduated from the academy goes look at the serial number one it was <laughs> zero zero one it was amazing and that was a really amazing moment and and then he was showing he showed me the kind of the um 
Fairchild limiters that they use. Yeah. And he's saying, you know, he just likes to run a bass through it on bypass, as in so there's no effect happening, but you're just running a sound through it because you get this kind of weird warmth from it. And I think that is what's so interesting about all that stuff is they all have character. Yes. So the, the tape mm. machine has character, the limiter has character, the compressor has character. And most importantly, the room, the big thing you notice about it is it's not... When you walk into a modern studio, a modern studio is dead. The sound doesn't echo at all, you know, uh, because that's, you know, the most best, kind of most precise way to record sounds. But walking into Studio 2 is this very active, lively room, and that's got character. Mm. Yeah, so all yeah, those yeah. separate elements are kind of putting their, uh, you know their trademark on, on, on the sound you're recording. That was what I thought was amazing, that every yeah. aspect of it had And the Mrs. Of... Mills as well that they have there. So I was, I was hoping, I was going to try and set up the, because uh, there's a company called Spitfire, if you're not a sort of audio person, uh, yeah. who do incredible um, sampling of famous instruments. And they've done a couple like um, the Mrs. Mills piano, um, mm. which we didn't get to play, unfortunately. Yeah. Which is one thing <laughs> I was really looking forward to playing. But... One, I did just record a few little bits because I couldn't set up my piano. But if you listen to so talking about the sound of the room, mm. the insane detail that they go into on those plugins is that you can hear them sort of mic'd up as they would have been mic'd up, mm. which was, um, you know, the sort of in the vintage classic 60s way where you had those like D19s that were mm. placed on the strings were going into the like Red 47 and the J37. Mm. But actually, Without the sound of the room, they don't mm. sound that like iconic. And we've had a few people on the show who have said that, you know, when you play Lady Madonna on that piano, everyone sort of looks at each other and hairs <laughs> go up on the back of the neck type yeah. thing. And so I just thought I'd like play two versions of it. Um, cool. Like one with the room. I mean, you might be like, I can't tell the difference. <laughs> <laughs> but um, what, the one, so this is it sort of just very close mic'd. I mean, it's obviously sampled, so it's not going to sound exactly like it. But this is just that riff. So it's you can hear also the way that it's, um, <laughs> it's incredible. They have to keep it detuned. Yeah, yeah. In the yeah. way that it's always been T-tuned, because that's yeah. why that piano is sort of so iconic. But then when you have those sort of Decker mics, it just sounds like a completely different piano. And it's not reverby, and it's no. not like the room's huge, and, 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 and you know, but it has something, there's something, maybe it's something to do with the fact that it's underground, but mm. it just has this really, like, idiosyncratic characteristic. Yeah, characteristic. yeah. definitely. Um, but one thing we did do was go into the echo chamber. Yeah. Yeah. Which was really great, and I'm not sure how much they used that echo chamber on Beatles records, because I'm sure, like, sheet and plate reverb must have been relatively standard in somewhere in the in that chain that they used mm. but the idea would be what, what that they would put the speaker into the um, I think that they would record, then, record vocals in there to get the kind of slap vocals, back yeah, yeah. 
Um, um, I mean, that's that had a that had a, a funky smell. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, and we recorded it a tiny bit. We wanted we bit we did sort of surreptitiously record that we can play now. We are in the echo chamber in Abbey Road. Woo! Woo! Very nice echo. Oh my god, really good. Very powerful feelings. It smells like a Turkish bath. It smells like a Turkish bath. It looks like a Turkish bath. <laughs> yeah. They're playing a bit of Martha, my dear. Oh god. Alice, no. just quick thoughts. I think I'm going to start a band. <laughs> <laughs> That kind of smelt like an old wine cellar. It was, kind of <laughs> yeah. that, and, but that was that was amazing. It was just God. But but the smell of it, it it reinforced to me that it is a workplace. Yeah, yeah. And mm. it's a place where they worked very hard, and where mm. a lot of other bands worked really, really hard. Yeah. And if you look at how much they wrote and how much they released and recorded, they were they were grafters. I think mm. people forget that how much they grafted especially in comparison with modern bands yeah and yeah it is a slightly funky smell but even if you're <laughs> at that level not everything's perfect or it certainly wasn't in the 60s and it's just part of it's just part of the character of the place yeah and especially in studio two i i got this in in studio two the most the beatles that's because they were working there almost constantly that's where their friendship happened really mm. Mm. especially with Ringo who was brought down and like plonked in that room yeah you know, that was his first time that he recorded with them and things like that it is the friendship I think that's what I was trying to get at when I was talking about the kind of sort of summary atmosphere of Sergeant Pepper because the the studio became the respite doesn't wasn't it you know after the touring finished that's where they went and that's where they bonded yeah and that's where the atmosphere, which is so unique to Sergeant Pepper, was formed. You know, mm. and that's the kind of... And it would have been a proper respite as well, because yeah. it was the one place where they weren't being... Yeah. You know, that was all that, you know, the footage of people sort of hassling outside. But as soon as they're through that door, it's like, oh, we're now sort of, you know, free to be creative. And that's where they argued, and that's where they had lunch, mm. and that's where they just made silly jokes and... Yeah. Had the same kind of laid-back, comforting conversations that all tight friendship groups have. Mm. You know, mm. where you just talk about nothing really, or you might yeah. talk about what you did with your girlfriend. You know, Paul might have said, "Oh, yeah, me and Jane Asher." I don't doubt you refer to her by her <laughs> full name, but um, <laughs> uh, you know, we went out last night. We saw a film, or I, yeah. I, I read the book Beatles '66 very recently, and. Mm. They were also young men, so they were going out in the yeah. town and stuff, and they were hanging out with the Rolling Stones and the Who, and they were go they were just going to clubs and they were going to premieres and all all the kind of mm. stuff that you would do if you were twenty five and very wealthy. And um, but the morning after, they'd have nursed hangovers there. Yeah. They'd have been slightly ill there. They'd have been, you know, they'd have knocked off early or they'd have knocked off because they might have had a cold and they'd have worked late. I thought it all happened here. Yeah, yeah. And Studio 2, I think, is 190 of the 210 songs they recorded were done at Studio 2. Mm. So if mm. you're... If the Beatles mean anything to you, you're, you're going to get... You're going to feel an awful lot of emotion when you walk into that room because, mm. um, yeah, I found it tremendously evocative. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even looking at that sort of really, you know... 
think like you shouldn't get that emotion about a, a, a compressor. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, I was at the, I went to the British Library this morning, and I just had this moment when I, I saw a ten thousand year old harp from ancient Mesopotamia, <laughs> and I felt absolutely nothing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, that's four great. days earlier I'd been looking at sort of presents boxes and uh, yeah, you know, getting. Well, I think the, the stuff where, which they'd interacted with, like I remember the, weirdly the, the the RCA mic that John sang "Your Blues" through. I just yes, that was like, that oh my god! Yeah. And you know the 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 DI boxes they used for recording the guitars on Revolution, the really overdriven guitars and things like that. Stuff like that I found amazing, and and also thinking about once you go through the studio complex is quite labyrinthine. And so I found it really interesting to think about recording the White Album where, you know, okay, Paul might have done Blackbird here, you know, Revolution Number no. 9 might have been upstairs, you know. You know, Year Blues was apparently, they recorded it in just a little cupboard off um, where they kept all the tape. Uh, yeah, in the studio cupboard studio. under the stairs. Like, cupboard called, under the yeah. stairs, yeah. So I just love the idea of that, like the kind of, yeah, like a doll's house, which mm. was the working title, of, you know, kind of. Yeah, them going around doing their own little thing here, there, and everywhere. Yeah, to, to and quote. it is because it's sort of like being in a, in a haunted house, but it's haunted by yeah. memories of everything that you love yeah. more than anything in the world. Yeah, <laughs> and also they grew up in that studio, mm. so that first you know that first day when they recorded "Please Please Me," they would have been intimidated by. It. Yeah. Because mm. you're like, oh god, we're a, we're, you know, we're a big studio and they're a yeah. young band. Plus, it's a massive room. I mean, studio yeah. two is yeah. huge. So, n- n- you know, and there's obviously the for a start, I don't like your tie joke. Is yeah. is something that a nervous boy from Liverpool who hasn't recorded in a big posh studio before would say to someone mm. who sounded you know tremendously educated yeah. because he'd had elocution lessons, and then by the time they're recording. You know, rubber sole or revolver. They'd have been so comfortable in their surroundings, yeah. And everyone would have known who they were. Yeah. It's like your first day in an office, and you feel really <laughs> embarrassed when you get tea bags. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then, and then after after mm. three months, you know, you can get tea bags without feeling a hot sense of shame. Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. This is um, this is a George Harrison quote. Uh, it's, he says, when you think of the songs that were made in that studio, it's amazing because there was no atmosphere in there, which is kind of contrary to what we're saying. We had to make the atmosphere. After a number of years, we asked them, could we have some coloured lights or a dimmer or something like that? <laughs> After asking them for about three years, they finally brought in this big steel stand with a couple of red and blue neon lamps on it. That was the magic lighting they gave us. The refrigerator had a padlock on it, so if we wanted a cup of tea, we'd have to break open the padlock on the fridge <laughs> to get the milk out. We had to do that every night for five years. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't like they realised, oh, well, they drink tea after six o'clock, so we'll leave the fridge open. Oh, no, they padlocked it all the time. <laughs> That's typical, George, always accentuating the positive. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because also they yeah. recorded really late. They yes. had lots of late nights. Yeah, but they also really modernised the studio in that, in, you know, it obviously was like that at the beginning. But when you, when you first went there, you had to wear a suit all day apart from yeah. nights and weekends, which is incredible. And by the end, you know, you've got the whole of the symphony orchestra wearing, you know, psychedelic regalia or whatever. Yeah. yeah. And the band talk about EMI in particular, and I think probably Abbey Road as well, in the same way that you would talk about... BBC or the civil service in the 60s mm. it was mm. I think quite prim mm. and it was men 
wearing lab coats and holding clipboards, mm. and yet suddenly you've got you know, long, long-haired musicians. Yeah, but that mm. that kind of atmosphere is so alluring now. So, so, like, the Radiophonic Workshop was only down the road. But that kind of combination of real innovation with the kind of quite prim, staid atmosphere. Yeah, it's so I kind of, it, it's your job to make incredible sounds. It's like, yeah. you know, that, that, that's... I just, that's the I'm, sort of George Martin encapsulated, really, isn't it? And we haven't yeah. really mentioned his name, but there's so much of him in those yeah. in that room you know yes you can just almost see him in the corner of your eye tinkering away in the in the control room through the the glass panel and you know that's it's very much his stomping ground isn't yeah. it it's very and rare so- to see a picture of them uh in that room without him somewhere <laughs> i mean yeah. this is i've got um this is such a good book george martin's summer of love which is out of print now it's about the making of sergeant pepper mm. um and George Martin's such a good stylist as well. He's so funny. I mean, he's got that kind of slightly ironic kind of uh, posh way of talking. There's mm. a great bit where he says, he talks about 12-bar blues. He says, the number of popular songs that derive from this basic form is as unto the stars of heaven. <laughs> <laughs> it's so good. Mm. <laughs> he's very funny. And what's lovely about the book is, as well is his, I'll come on to this later, but his relationship with John, where there's obviously a teacher-son thing, I think, and John, I think he says was the less sort of technical of the Beatles and would come to George, how can I do this? How can I do that? Um, but this is a great, uh, I think this is re- this is George Martin writing about Pepper. He says, it was Debussy's La Prime Midi d'un Fawn that started me off down this particular road. I heard it for the first time when I was 15 in my school hall, performed by B- the BBC Symphony Orchestra. Sitting there listening, I started seeing these images, the drowsy buzz of a summer, wo- summer wood, the dapple of light and shade, the deer and the other animals browsing in the summer heat. It made me realise that the fences we put up between art and music could be broken down, that crossover might sometimes be possible. We certainly tried to do something of that on Pepper. By the time of Pepper, the Beatles had immense power at Abbey Road, so did I. They used to ask for the impossible and sometimes they would get it. At the beginning of their recording career, I used to boss them about, especially for the first year or so. By the time we got to Pepper, though, that had all changed. I was very much the collaborator. Their ideas were coming through thick and fast, and they were brilliant. All I did was help make them real. It's really good. Such <laughs> a great man. I, yeah. I mean, he's just, yeah, such, this couldn't be a more perfect person to arrive for those, those four blokes, really, could there? That kind of yeah. sums up everything, really, doesn't it? And because he'd worked on things like the goon show yeah he had to work imaginatively in quite constrained and mm. in, in quite a constrained environment yeah and mm. he also had to work um he had to work very effectively at turning savants or often quite instinctive talents strange requests mm into into something that you could put on a record because if yeah. Spike Milligan's saying, "Well, he's got to sound like a cow giving birth in space," <laughs> he, he he you have you have to do that. Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. That was the thing he would say. John would give him notes. Um, he would be like, "John used to say to me, make it sound orange." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, the, can I quote another bit? Because this is the bit about John, which I think is so. It's really it's quite moving actually because I do think there was this special relationship between them in a way sergeant pepper is a utopia john was a super realist but at the same time he was always looking for instant utopias he was a paradox he never heard in real life what he dreamed he could hear 
what we heard was something of what he wanted, interpreted by me and the rest of the Beatles, but something that always fell short of his own image of perfection. And that, in a way, is perhaps a measure of my failure. It's very humble there. (laughs) At the same time, a small part of me is sceptical of all this because I know how easy it is to fool oneself with the imagination, with dreams. I have often dreamt wonderful sounds, but realised, even in my dream, that if I ever tried to make them real on waking, they would not actually sound anything like as good. Perhaps in reality, John did get as near as he could to making his musical dreams come true. We'll never know. To John, the recording process was like the difference between a good lithograph and the original painting that is locked away in a vault somewhere and never seen. I hope that wherever he is now, his dreams are being realised, the painting and not the pale imitation. My professional life during the Beatle years had, of course, one overriding purpose, to make sure the Beatles got what they wanted. I remember a lovely phrase I once heard in a French film whose title I cannot remember. Music is dreams. It's nice. Oh. <laughs> how, how can I get that book? I, d- I know, it's crazy. It was written around the time of the South Bank um, 25-year anniversary. There'll be a copy on Abe Books, I would imagine. Yeah, mm. yeah. It's well, very, very yeah, good. That, I mean, he's such a brilliant writer. He's a great writer, and I think yeah. that it really made me realise that, that that kind of... You know, he talks beautifully about John quite shyly playing him Strawberry Fields. Like, oh, what do you think? Mm. And George Mike going... Are you fucking crazy? (laughs) (laughs) Didn't talk like that. But, you know, just can you imagine what that would have felt like? He knew it was amazing at the time. And and to be that humble, to show that humility. Yeah, to say you didn't quite do it. It would be very easy to go... And I absolutely nailed it. And the evidence is there in some yeah. of the most cherished records that have ever been made. Needless to say, <laughs> yeah. I have the last laugh. Yeah. yeah. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. 
we then went into Studio One, <laughs> which was it reminded me of you know in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy where they they go into that place where they build planets and it's so big it's yeah, hard to yeah. describe how big it was. Studio One felt a bit mm. like that. It was like it's it was almost too big. Studio yeah. One, it said, is the biggest um, dedicated recording studio in the world. Mm. Wow, is it? Really? Or the biggest studio space yeah. because you you know you. You can fit, and they'd set it up as if there was, I think, a forty-five piece orchestra and a hundred strong choir mm. ready to go. So they played mm. us a piece of orchestral music from a film score that was made in nineteen ninety-nine. That was that was made by the choir, uh, that was made by the orchestra with the choir with the sort of the hundred-member choir. So it is, you know, it, the place is mm. huge, mm. and yeah. that obviously is where they did a day in the life. Which yeah. yeah, and all you need is love. So. Yeah, mm. Mm. so that's where they the 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 TV version. Yeah, yeah, and also, yeah. and the end endless chord from the end of and the end. endless chord, which is probably my favourite moment in recorded music ever. Mm. Mm. And so, and a day in the life would be in my top three Beatles songs. Mm. And so you think, and, and the footage of that is great because it's. It's so 60s because they had a party and, you know, Mick Jagger's there and lots of other famous people are there and they all look great. And it's that Sergeant Pepper era with the sort of sideburns down to the jawline and the tash and... And Ringo looks like he's used a volumizer on his hair because his hair is quite fine and and he just looks different. And, And the orchestra dressed up. And it just must, and everyone's smoking. It just must have been a great night mm. when mm. they did that. And because the room's so huge, a thing I was surprised at is that in the seventies, no one really used it. So Pink Floyd used to play badminton in there. Oh yeah, <laughs> and they used to play five a side against their crew because it's yeah. big enough. Yeah. Until the people who own Abbey Road realised that they were. You know, it was an absurd thing to hemorrhage money having this enormous space for recording and not use it. Mm. And it's ridiculous that you've got prog bands playing five-a-side against their <laughs> crew when it could be used for, you know, something more purposeful. So that's when they got into film scores. So that's when they did things like Indiana Jones and Lord of the Rings yeah. was done in there as well. And, um, and How to Train Your Dragon 2, as they told us. <laughs> <laughs> and... And you think, of course. And then they played us some stuff from a film score and it just sounds magnificent. And yeah. it's so perfect mm-hmm. for that stuff. And through the speakers, it's a really, you know, especially if you're in, in the modern era used to listening to music on your phone or through your mm. laptop. It's a completely different experience. Yeah. And um, it's definitely the closest I've ever come to an orchestra in the room. It sounded... It sounds because you know you can see yeah. the empty spaces through the panel, and you, I was sort of double taking that there wasn't yeah a, a huge mm. orchestra, in there. and there was the they did the duel of fates from from the episode one of Star Wars is what it was. Yeah. So it's got this huge choral part. I actually had my cello teachers playing cello on it, and my oh, singing nice. teachers in the choir. I was, um, that's cool. <laughs> good I was fact, I was going to say that about when when they played Imagine, you know, in the in the Studio Three when the piano started. It was like you did, it did. It was a trick. Of, uh, it felt like a trick of the the light. You know, it's that, mm. how where is the piano? It sounded so present. 
you know. And then the the great thing that made me think, which kind of keys into what we've been saying, is when John starts singing. Of course, it doesn't sound like someone singing in the room there because of that slapback echo. Mm. And I think that's kind of what you know John always was trying to hide his voice. And that's what you know. So Studio One is great for capturing that real life sound of an orchestra but what's mm. so much of what the Beatles did was not create a sound of what it actually sounds like singing in a room yeah. mm. you know it was distorted it was went backwards it was kind of you know it's the saturation you know the, the delays and reverbs that John liked on his mm. voice and the thing that was pointed out to me was it's three thousand pounds a day to hire and I thought that's not, not that's not that much. Yeah. Mm. So and throughout then, the day, yeah, you were talking about you want to do your as your fiftieth birthday. Yeah. Make an album there. <laughs> my my vanity project. Yeah. I'm yeah. Make a terrible mm. album there. <laughs> but it was because because I because I thought you know they, they made Lord of the Rings and all these huge hit film scores there for three grand mm. a day and then the the guide said yeah it's not that much but that's not where the money comes into mm. if you've got a forty five piece orchestra and they're all charging. 120 to 200 quid an hour and then mm. the choir all charge the same and there's a hundred of them mm. and you're there for weeks and weeks on end that's where the and i was like oh, yes yes of course. <laughs> right right yeah yeah okay okay I, I won't i won't record in here then that's fine that's fine yeah there's a lovely bit in the documentary that came out with um flaming pie because paul i don't think had worked at Abbey Road for a while, and he certainly hadn't worked with George Martin for a while. And there's a bit where he comes into Abbey Road to put on the strings for Beautiful Night mm. and uh, sort of follows him in. You see them meet and they're just sort of... He's conducting all the strings and stuff and you just look like... He just looks so at home and just happy mm. to be in that building. And he looks just as excited to mm. be there, being Paul McCartney, who had been there his whole life. Mm. Listening to an orchestra play in that room, you know, there's it, there's something but I incredible think about it. If if the rest of the band had enjoyed making music as much as Paul, yeah, they would have carried on for much longer. Yes, yeah. Mm. Yeah. because I think he had, you know, Lennon had five years off, mm. and George, you know, certainly slowed down by the end. He didn't do stuff for ages and ages. Mm. Whereas Paul, you can't imagine Paul doing that because I think he's just mm. got this. An overwhelming desire to create, this urge to create, mm. Mm. and yeah, I think you know, he's he also I think of the four of them had a, a quite an old fashioned Protestant work ethic. Mm. Mm. I think he's a he's a real hard worker, Paul, and yeah. he's you know he he made an album in lockdown. He's got nothing to prove to anyone. Yeah. Chill out, mm. watch <laughs> watch some telly, go on your phone, but <laughs> he can't stop. And I just think yeah. that's yeah. such a special. Treat, yeah, mm, I could do with a bit of that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah and I, th- and I, th- I think it probably keeps him young. Mm. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's where you know, if he's doing a grand dude single sequel now, probably I imagine. <laughs> yeah, but that, that's one thing that's nice about the Rick Rubin documentary is that he says, you know, have you seen that? Ellis? I haven't actually. I'll have to watch that. Yeah, he sort of talks about the whole business was so back to front for the Beatles because most of the time you're in a band you write the songs you practice them and then you record them but you know they got to the stage where it was basically they were writing or bringing a song in coming up with the arrangement learning it all in one day and recording it and then it was done and you wouldn't really you could just move on to the next thing yeah mm. and that spirit of the kind of that's what drives the Beatles brilliance is this that spirit of you know 
spent spending one day on this creation or two or however long it would take and you know mm. there's something it, there's the spontaneity about them are the best Beatles songs well I've read a lot of the David Hepworth books recently mm. and he made the point that bands who take years and years to make an album yeah it is usually a bad album <laughs> yeah. yeah there are there are very few examples in rock music yeah of a group that's given complete license to spend what they want and take as much time as they like yeah making a good album it just it the, the best springs to mind maybe but. yeah i mean it can happen yeah, but in, yeah. in the main one group yeah. said we can't wait for you to hear our new record it's taken us eight years it's, yeah. usually, <laughs> it's, it's usually rubbish we did talk quite a bit about be here now on the day yeah because it, it kept being played yeah followed us around they played more be here now than beatles yeah <laughs> my god Um, but I'll just sort of finish with the, the with the quote that they gave us, which is from George Martin. And he says, If you believe, as I do, that a house has atmosphere and is capable of, of absorbing the personalities and emotions of its inhabitants, you'll have no difficulty appreciating the unique quality of Abbey Road. Which is very sort of, you know, well-chosen, obviously. And uh, But then it does, that did kind of sum it up for me as, yeah. as I said it does yeah. feel you can feel everything seeping out the walls especially in studio two and we mm. talked briefly afterwards about like similar feelings that you know had at other places and I just couldn't I had maybe when I first went to television center mm. because that was so yeah. iconic and all I wanted to do is work in tv and I'm lucky enough to do so so the first time I was there but then when I went inside it was like a horrible Kafkaesque nightmare. <laughs> right. <laughs> Whereas Abbey Road is everything you want it to be. You mentioned Anfield, didn't you, Alice? Yeah, it reminded me of when when Swansea City were in the Premier League and I got to go to grounds that I'd only ever seen on much of the day because obviously we'd been mm. in the lower leagues. So I did go to Old Trafford and I did go to Anfield. And especially... The, you know, places like that or Goodison Park or White Hart Lane. I went to White Hart Lane when Spurs were still playing there, the old one. You think, wow, this, you know, these, these, those grounds have often, they're often right in the heart of the communities. So Anfield mm. in particular is just surrounded by terraced streets and houses that have, that are, that are, that are as old as the stadium itself. And it hasn't really changed that much. I mean, it's still recognisable, I think. But it's changed enough in a way that Abbey Road hasn't, that I got an even more Proustian pang when I went into mm -hmm. Abbey Road. It was... I'd, I'd never really experienced anything like it, actually. I yeah. Less Ian Rush, more Proustian Rush. <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, um, I hadn't expected for the workplace where my favourite band recorded their stuff would have such an effect on me because mm. that is what it is in it in essence but it's obviously so much more than that yeah yeah mm. so, more thing before you go <laughs> so i just recently came across my copy of during the 80s george martin made a re recording of under milk wood oh did uh, he oh. yeah he did it uh, he didn't do it at abbey road he did it at his air studios mm. but it's, it's got anthony hopkins on it. it's also got bonnie tyler <laughs> <laughs> what's, what's Bonnie Tyler doing on it? She's singing on it. That's Tom Jones is in it. Oh, it's actually quite good. 
Um, obviously, the Welsh connection, but mm. like, there's there's a just the George Martin intro again is lovely because he talks again about Dylan Thomas making pictures in sound. Yeah, and mm. you know, that's the thing that strikes me from Abbey Road and from reading what he wrote about it is that he was trying to create this world and you know. So much of it is George Martin. So much. Yeah. I was just noticing the other day, like I'm only sleeping. The sound of you know someone yawning. Like who else would mm. think to put that yes. comic detail in a song? You um, know, it's uh, and, it's just brilliant. And because they were untrained and they yeah. didn't read music, yeah, you have got these four feral talents, <laughs> yeah. and they're saying, "Well, I want it to sound a bit like this." And then obviously mm. the the musically trained person who can read music has to interpret. What these, what the feral talent is bringing to him, mm. and they had, you know, bearing in mind their backgrounds were so different, they did have a really beautiful working relationship, I think. Mm. Mm. And also, he's not as old as you think. No, <laughs> that's that, that's the mm. weird thing. Yeah, but I think it's yeah. also sort of testament to him that there's, he's probably the only character in the whole Beatles story that every one of them loved. Mm. Yes, because even Paul and Brian Epstein didn't really get on, um, and you know other people that came on the scene they were usually m- massively split over. Yeah, mm. but it seems like George, like, no one's ever had about even John, Mal. who's basically on record as Mal, yeah. saying yeah. <laughs> that Neil he hates Spindle. pretty much everyone. Mm. Yeah, he's the, he's in that core of people that was just so central, mm. and and he was, you know, we we're talking about you know Paul's boundless enthusiasm and would have kept them going but they were you know there would be no abbey road if their producer wasn't george martin the Mm, album yeah you know he was the one that knew when they were going wrong before they did (laughs) um and then to end with an album that is named after that studio is then so apt yeah and uh yeah we, we went to the shop and i bought the new remixes of abbey road at abbey road and uh i'll treasure that I got a fridge magnet. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for coming with us, Ellis. It was a pleasure to I, share such a momentous day with you. It was honestly an honour and a thrill, and I'm so glad you asked me, because of all the people you've had on the podcast, you could have asked any of them, and I am delighted that you asked me, because it was genuine. I will never forget it, actually. I will never forget it. Mm. And I, saw, I went to visit my, um, my parents the next day, and I told my mum, I said, I went to Happy Road yesterday. And as my mother was a huge Beatles fan, she was uh, 11 when um, Love Me Do was released. So she was the perfect mm. age for yeah, Beatlemania and was a big singles collector. She was more of a, a seven-inch singles collector than an album collector, I think. Mm. But certainly the, the Paul in particular, but the Beatles all meant a huge amount to her, still do. And she was just, she said, what was it like? And I said, honestly, it is momentous. It is a really, really colossal place to visit if you are lucky enough. So, yeah, thank you very much for having me. Script. There was one thing I was going to ask you. If you could take one thing home with you, what would it be? The Vox amps. They just looked like they sounded so nice. Mm. Although 
the Hammond that Billy Preston definitely used and that John and Paul definitely used with the fag burns. I mean, I just would just look at those fag burns all the time if I had that <laughs> Hammond organ in my house. I think I'd take the mm. smell. Okay, <laughs> just uh, you can it can instantly replicate that smell in the yeah. room. Yeah, in. and the vending yeah. machine. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I would have taken something I haven't mentioned, which is that the Leslie speaker. Oh, oh yeah, the Leslie yeah. speaker. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, because I've never played through a Leslie speaker. I yeah. also, looking at it, cannot for the life of me work out how that works. It's a revolving speaker, isn't it? Yeah, I know the mechanics yeah. of it, but where, like, where do you, where the mics go? I mean, it just looks like something that. Might have it been looked, like when we cleared out my great auntie's house in Westminster yeah. Mayor that could have quite easily gone on a tip. Yeah. It looks just a sort of cabinet, there's no entrance to it, but yeah, that would yeah. be mine. That's nice. Cool. Goodbye. It's a, <laughs> <laughs> it's a Leslie speaker on Black Hole Sun, isn't there? Anyway. Beatles is presented by Jack Pelling and Robin Allender. The podcast artwork is done by Morgan Ritchie. It's produced by me, Jack Pelling, and is a homespun sounds production. 